Zach, can you read the Beatitudes for us? Absolutely. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you. I'm going to pray one more time before I start. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray that you would um, help me. Uh, I need help. Uh, I pray that what we talk about would have uh, eternal significance, Lord. Uh, I pray that as we all evaluate what we know and what we don't know and who we are, um, that we would have a right understanding of who we are. If we, if we think we're a Christian, then that we'd be convicted that we're a Christian. If we're not a Christian, that we would want to be a Christian. Uh, Lord, I just pray uh, your blessing over my teaching. In your name, amen. 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 All right, yeah. Second week, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So as John taught last week, the Beatitudes are not a path to salvation, but they're one from salvation. You know what I'm saying? The, the saved person doesn't act the Beatitudes out and get saved for it. A person is saved, and then they act out the Beatitudes because they are saved. Does that make sense? The Beatitudes are a path from salvation. The Beatitudes are the characteristics of Christians, and really we're truly blessed because there's no one to give us, there's no one better to give us the characteristic, characteristics of the saved than the one who actually saves. And we have Jesus sitting on a mountain saying, this is what the Christian looks like. Blessed is this, blessed is this, this is the Christian life. He's sitting on a mountain giving us uh, a general, but a comprehensive understanding of the regenerate believer, the person who has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Holy Holy Spirit came into a dead sinner, the heart was turned from stone to flesh, they're a Christian, and now they know what a Christian is, the Beatitudes. The blessed characteristics of the Beatitudes flow from a Christian because they are saved, which means that all Christians will display all of the Beatitudes. There's no Christian that will only display some of the Beatitudes. That's really important. Uh, now, we're not all perfect, but we will all, to some degree, display a thirst for, for righteousness, meekness, purity of heart. Uh, we all should mourn. We should all be poor in spirit. We shouldn't neglect one of those, and we should seek to grow in all of those. We will be naturally worse at some of them. We need to grow in them. Uh, but it should be noted that the poor in spirit and those who mourn come first. That's one and two. Poor in spirit, those who mourn. Negatives. We would look at those as negatives. Uh, the Beatitudes are not unlike a ladder. A ladder is least effective when it's missing the few rungs. The Beatitudes form a nice teaching that's cohesive, uh, and it's climbable. When I say climbable, I mean uh, if Jesus would have just opened his mouth and said, Blessed are the pure heart. Oh, that's, that's a lot more intimidating than blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. 
if I had to step to the seventh rung without the previous six, that would be difficult to say the least. The ladder is least effective when the first rung is out of reach. So, first week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And with our feet planted firmly on that, we step to the second rung, one that, funnily enough, lies parallel to the first. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our first rung describes the heart of the regenerate believer. They have been regenerated. That is undisputable. They have been regenerated, and they see that they lack righteousness. They see that God is righteous. They see that they are not righteous. They are spiritually bankrupt, as John said. They have turned to God for mercy, and they have inherited the kingdom of God. So now we step to the second. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this, at best, seems paradoxical. It seems backwards, especially if we're working from our definition that John gave of blessed, where he said happy or joyful. And mourning... It's certainly more than being sad, but it's not less than being sad. So happy are those that are sad, for they shall be comforted. That is backwards. That's not how things work. Jesus, what are you talking about? That's not how things work. We could take it further. We could say joyful are those who are broken, but that still makes no sense. There's something wrong here. That's backwards. And to further our confusion, just as we just talked, the Beatitudes are desirable. We want to get as much righteousness as possible. We want to be as pure in heart as we can be. We want to be more mean. Um, but we would rarely encourage a friend to go get a good day of mourning in. Hey, go, uh, go home and uh, be a sad sack. Uh, that's odd. If, if, if somebody asked us about our favorite hobbies, uh, I'm willing to bet that none of us would say uh, mourning. I like to sit at home and feel bad about myself. Some of us do that, but we wouldn't say that as our top activity or hobby. So something is, is odd here. Jesus is saying that mourning is a good thing, but the world looks at mourning and says, no, that's an awful thing. Don't mourn. There's also the question of comfort, which is interesting. Why would I desire to be sad only to be comforted? I would, I would rather remain not sad. I would rather not go on this emotional roller coaster that Jesus is asking me to go on, where I am joyful because I'm sad and therefore comforted. I would rather remain at my nice static level of not sadness, and you can keep the comfort. That's fine. So Jesus is saying it's good to mourn, it's good to be comforted. So we need to figure out what those mean. And our worldly wisdom comes crashing down, and we're left in a in a state of perplexity of what this exactly means. So we have to answer two questions. Who are the mourners that are blessed? And what is the blessing for these blessed mourners? Who are the mourners that are blessed? And what is the blessing of comfort? What is that? So we'll start with the first one, and then we'll answer the second one as logic follows. First question, what is the mourning, or who are the mourners that are blessed? Certainly all mourning is not created equal. There are different kinds of mourning. When someone says they're mourning, or they've begun to mourn, they're usually referring to the death of someone, or the loss of something. We'll call this common mourning, okay? Common mourning is the loss of something. The death of a family member or a friend, 
the loss of a home or a pet, you had something good given by God, you had something good, now you don't, and you're distressed about it. That's common mourning. Uh, certainly is a type of mourning, but it's not blessed. Remember, the Beatitudes are things we want to get as much of as possible. <clears throat> Jesus is not saying you want to get out and get as much common mourning as possible. That's why we laughed earlier, because nobody would say mourning is their favorite hobby or they want to mourn. Larry's never going to say, I'm going to go home and be a sad sack. That's not going to happen. Jesus doesn't want you to get as much common mourning as you can. It's not true of bereavement. Death and loss is not a good thing you want to get more of. More of. There is sinful mourning. This is the second kind of mourning. Sinful mourning. It's a pining or a desire for something that God has not given. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10. We won't turn to it, but you can take a note of it. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul talks about a worldly sorrow or a worldly mourning that leads to death. And I would submit that that is sinful mourning. We have biblical examples of this. If you know the story of Ahab... Ahab desired a vineyard that was owned by Naboth, and that created all sorts of problems. He set his mind, he set his eyes to it, he set his heart and mind to it, and then he started getting it. The best example is right there in the beginning of your Bible, Eve. God says, don't eat the fruit. You can't have the fruit. And she looks at the fruit and says, boy, that fruit looks good. I'm mourning the fact that I don't have that fruit. She sets her eyes, sets her heart, takes it, and now we're in the world of trouble we are in now. That's sinful mourning, and it's also certainly not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus doesn't want to give ourselves into sinful mourning. Common mourning. You had something, now you don't, and you're distressed. Sinful mourning, you don't have something, you want that something, and then you might sin to get it. So neither of those is the mourning that Jesus is talking about. I only have one left in me that's spiritual mourning, which is certainly what Jesus is talking about. Spiritual mourning is primarily a mourning over personal sin and a personal lack of righteousness. That's how it connects to the poor in spirit, a personal lack of righteousness. Spiritual mourning is primarily a mourning or sorrow or brokenness over personal sin and a personal lack of righteousness. Secondarily, so we had our primary, secondarily, spiritual mourning is a mourning over the sin of others, the fallenness of the world, and apathy to the gospel. Secondarily, spiritual mourning is mourning over the sin of others, the fallenness of the world, and apathy to the gospel. Primary, secondary, spiritual mourning. You could also say inward spiritual mourning and outward spiritual mourning. I mourn my personal sin and personal lack of righteousness, and I mourn other sin, the fallenness of the world, and apathy to the gospel. Does that make sense? Inward and outward. Spiritual mourning is primarily inward, secondarily outward. So we're going to work from the outside in. So 1 Corinthians 15.2, Romans 5.12. Paul writes that sin entered the world through one man and death through that sin. Genesis 3 brought a curse that ruined everything. Things are not the way they should be. 
everything is off. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it was better not to be born. It's not better to be dead. It's better not to be born. That's how the world is sick. Things are wrong. Creation has fallen. Other people's sin, which affects us, little kids, they come and kick you in the shins. I mourn that. That is sin against me. I mourn that. People shoot each other in the streets. Certainly they're mourning that as they're dying. People sin against us all the time, and we should mourn that. People are apathetic to the gospel. Beginning in Romans 9, Paul says, I would be accursed if, you could, if I could give you my salvation. He wishes that they would turn to the gospel. He's, they're apathetic to the gospel, and he's mourning it. It's not the way that things should be. And our comfort comes in secondary spiritual mourning because Jesus said he was going to come back and he was going to make things right. And we know that Jesus is speaking as his doing. In Revelation 24, it says when he comes back, he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things that passed away. There will be comfort when the kingdom of heaven, I chose those words very specifically, first beatitude, the kingdom of heaven comes, there will be comfort. We won't have to mourn the fallenness of the world or the sin of others when Jesus comes back. So secondary spiritual mourning, the mourning of the sin of others, the fallenness of the world, and apathy to the gospel. And that will all be fixed when Jesus comes back. It's important to know. Now primary spiritual mourning. Primary spiritual mourning looks inward. And it's broken over personal sin and a personal lack of righteousness. It's a brokenness over sin that only you and God know about. It's, it's not only easily identifiable sin like murder or adultery or theft or addiction. It's sins that other people can see, it's easy to mourn those sins because people are looking at you. When I say a brokenness over sin, I don't mean remorse or regret. When I say spiritual mourning is brokenness and sorrow, I don't mean it's remorse and regret. Pagans feel remorse. Unregenerate people feel remorse and regret. A man cheats on his wife, a wife leaves him, they split the estate, he feels bad about it. That's not what he wanted. He knows he made a mistake, and he regrets it, but he doesn't think twice about looking at other women or flirting at somebody, flirting with somebody at work. That's regret and remorse for the sin he was caught for, not mourning over sin. You see the difference there? A child lies to their parents, gets caught in a lie. The child wishes they would have taken a different path. But they don't feel bad about the other times they lied and got away with it. That's remorse and regret. That's not mourning over the sin of lying. There's a difference between mourning, regret, and remorse. Spiritual mourning is a state of brokenness and sorrow over all sin. It doesn't matter the quote-unquote size. It doesn't matter if you get caught. All sin is a violation of God's perfect law and perfect character. That's what sin is. It's not just the stuff you get caught for. Let's look at a biblical example of, of mourning. You can turn to it if you want. Isaiah 6, it's right there in the beginning. Isaiah is transported up into the heavens, and he looks at the glory of things, and then he looks at himself, and he says, 
woe to me, I am finished, I am undone, I am unraveled. Woe to me, woe to me, I'm, I'm finished. Uh, he gives up. He sits there in the heavens and he says, I'm done, I'm done for. I see the holiness of God, I see my own sin. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees his personal lack of righteousness and he realizes that he's done for. He's standing before a completely holy and righteous God and there's nothing he can do at this point. He's completely done. That's mourning. Woe to me. Oh, that I were a different man. That's what mourning says. Woe to me. There's two reasons why mourning is important, why mourning is good. The first is that this kind of internal brokenness and sorrow and mourning, it battles cheap grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace can be summarized by this sentence. Once saved, live like the devil. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace is the mentality that Jesus paid for my sin. So now I can do whatever I want. He gave me the get out of jail free card. I can go murder and, and steal and rape and do whatever I want because Jesus has got me. That's cheap grace. That's cheap grace. It's also the language where we get, uh, I want Jesus to be uh, my savior, uh, but I don't necessarily want him to be my Lord. So I'll pray, Lord, I admit that I'm sinful. Please come into my heart and save me. But then there's no life change. There's no life change. You just admitted that you're sinful. Anybody can do that. Anybody can admit that they did wrong. When you're truly mournful over sin, you don't return to your sin. 2 Peter 2.22 and Proverbs 26.11, they liken sin to vomit. And they say only a fool or a dog returns back to his vomit. Have you ever seen, I don't know how many dog people are in there, dog <laughs> vomits on the floor, and then, you know, walks up to it, it's all good. That's my stuff. But, that is the greatest, that is the greatest visual representation of sin in the Bible. It's like vomit, because we all, we all know exactly what that looks like. When you're truly mournful and sorrowful over sin, you don't return to your vomit. That's nonsense. When purchased and sanctified by the blood of Christ, we don't keep on sinning. We recognize our sin for the evil it is, and we hate it. We hate it. Mourning battles cheap grace. Secondly, mourning your sin and being broken over your sin produces repentance and mortification. So repentance is a turning from sin, it's an abandonment of sin, and mortification is a mindset of killing sin, of waging war on sin. Coolest word I know, mortification. Um, you can look at 2 Timothy uh, 2.19. It says that the, the righteous depart from, they, they depart from their wicked ways. They don't stay in them, but they depart from their ways. They repent, they turn of their sin. When we truly don't want to return to our vomit because we recognize how foul it tastes, we don't. We choose to eat something else. Choose to eat something else. Uh, just later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus uses language like, pluck out your eye. It's better to make it to heaven, crippled, than to be thrown into hell with all your members. That's, that's mortification language. Be willing to wage war on your sin, whatever means necessary, with tenacity, with, with 
with some chutzpah, you're going to go at your sin because you understand that it is truly evil. Uh, Dr. Alan Redpath said, God, God has not promised to forgive one sin that you have not promised to forsake. If you're uh, living a Christian life where you're saying, I'm sinful, all of this is sin, Lord, I submit that to you, but don't touch that sin. That's mine. That's my, that's my good area. I like that. Why would we ever expect God to forgive that sin when we're holding on to it and clinging to it? When we rightfully mourn over our sin, we will be determined to run from all sin and to stop all sin. We will be determined to stop all sin. Now, this is a very important line to walk, because what you just heard me say is that Christians will stop sinning, but that's not what I mean to say. We are to have the determination to stop all sin. We in our fallen bodies will still sin from time to time. That's what, that's what Paul means when he said, Wretched man that I am, trapped in a body of death, who will deliver me? I do the things that I do not want. He's sinning, but he, he's desperately trying not to. We will continue to fall into sin despite our desperate desire to live righteously. And when we fall into sin, when we're really not trying to, we're trying to kill all sin, but we do, this should once again push us to mourning. But this time, we don't mourn our active disobedience, but we mourn our inactive ability to do what's good and right. We mourn our lack of righteousness. We see ourselves as poor in spirit, and we say, this is really truly awful that I'm poor in spirit. That I have no righteousness of my own, that really truly is awful. And we mourn it. That's how the two are connected. And right when this blessed mourner is mourning, mourning their lack of righteousness, that's when they realize what the comfort is. What's the comfort? Let's look at a few passages. First uh, John 3, 7, you can turn to them if you want, but I am going to go through them fast. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Romans 1, 17, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So stay, hold on, stay with me. But you get where I'm going. You, you know. <laughs> Genesis 15.6 Abraham looks upon the character and the promise of God and he believes him. He believes in God and God credits to him as righteousness. Romans 5.1 since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Why does faith and not works justify? That's an important question. Why does faith and not works justify? Because faith is the tool that unites us to the merit of Jesus. Faith is the avenue that unites us to Jesus. Faith binds us to Christ and his blood and his righteousness is then applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, all of a sudden, we have the righteousness of God by faith. 
We are imputed with righteousness. We have peace with God, even though we in ourselves recognize, woe is me, I'm undone. It's the greatest tension in the Christian life, that you have no good, but it's okay because Christ is all good, and he made it good. We in our natural state, devoid of righteousness, filled with sin. We do not do good. We hate God. We're slaves to sin. We're children of the devil. There is very clear language of who we are before regeneration. That is shockingly clear. But when the sinful carnal man is regenerated and becomes poor in spirit, and realizes what a sorry position he is in, he inherits the kingdom of God by regeneration by faith. And then that regenerate saint begins to truly mourn his position before God. He looks at his position and says, this is truly awful. And he mourns his position, he hates the evil within him, and he begins repenting and turning from sin. Which is precisely when he will and should be comforted, because by faith, the cross and repentance, the righteousness of God is credited to him, credited to him, freeing him from the wrath of God. He has nothing to worry about anymore. Not because he himself is righteous, but because he has obtained the righteousness of God by the work of Jesus. There is no better comfort than obtaining the righteousness of God. That is supreme comfort. We have obtained the righteousness of God, and now we stand feet firmly planted, justified before him, and will be glorified when he comes again. That is supreme comfort. Comfort in our age is, I'm sorry for your loss. Boy, that really sucks. I'll be here for you. Girl, wash your face. That's not comfort. <laughs> That's not comfort. Comfort is, is, is when, when Jesus speaks from Isaiah 43 and he says this. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. That's true comfort. That's supreme comfort. And so this can really all be boiled down to one principle. The believer's joy is directly proportional to their understanding of the condescension of Christ. The believer's joy is directly proportional to their understanding of the condescension of Christ. The condescension of Christ is this, that Jesus in heaven, fully God, humbled himself and became man. He lived righteously, and then he died on a tree for the sin of sinners. That's the condescension of Christ. When we say that Jesus condescended, that's what we mean. And so I can, uh, it helps me explain this if I draw it. And this will be a very cartoony drawing with many this is not supreme authoritative example. This is wrong. Okay, so here we have Timmy. Hi, Timmy. Timmy's a sinner. This is Jesus up here, okay? Oh, no, I just screwed up this wrong. That's all right. Jesus is up here in the heavens. Fully God. He hasn't condescended. And Timmy, he's sinful, but he's not that bad. He tells some lies, but... Really, he's really pretty close to heaven when you think about it. 
Uh, and so Jesus came down and he saved Timmy that much. Timmy understands his, sin, his sinfulness at this level, and he has joy now because Jesus, look what Jesus did to him. But Jerry, well, Jerry, Jerry, he feels like he's a little more sinful. He understands, he tells more lies than Timmy. He understands his sin a little better. And look how far Jesus had to go to save Jerry, or whatever I called him. Look how far Jesus went for him. He has far more joy than Timmy. And this guy, whoever this guy is, he has more joy than Jerry. And where should we be at with the biblical <coughs> understanding of sin? When we understand that we're wicked above all else, that our heart is desperately sick, that we do no good in and of ourselves, that our thoughts are continually evil, that we're trapped in a body of death, we're not even on the whiteboard. We are way, way down there. We are way down there. Christ left his heavenly throne to suffer the punishment we deserve. And when we understand the size of that punishment, or when the size of that punishment, our understanding becomes closer to reality, our joy, our thankfulness, our security, our comfort, they begin to grow far larger than the rest of the world. Mourning our sin only means that we come to realize how truly awful we are and prevalent it is in our, in our bodies and in our lives. We were wicked people, now justified by the work of Christ. Jesus' suffering covered an infinite debt. Okay? This is two, this is four, this is six. Ours is infinite. Infinite. Our joy is infinite. Our comfort is infinite. We could have never paid the debt that we owe. We could have never paid. But Jesus paid. So why are we called to mourn? What is the good of mourning? Because when we mourn, we affirm the truth that we were unworthy and incapable of saving ourselves. And therefore, we cast all hope, all want, all desire on Jesus. All of our hope is banking on the cross. Because we understand that we really can't do it ourselves. And when we mourn, we affirm that. And our comfort comes because just as Jesus is saying is his doing, his work is sure, it is true, it's sufficient. Uh, and so everybody wants some application. So how do you mourn? How do you mourn in the day-to-day? -day? Well, first, uh, you need to read your Bible. You need to have a proper understanding of what sin is, of what the holiness of God is, of what the glory of God is, is what sin is. You need to take introspective time instead of just going through your days and hustling through and not thinking about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing uh, and think about the sin. Look, through, look in your lives for sin. It's everywhere, but we so often don't notice it. Uh, when we pray, we should confess specific sin. Uh, sometimes the temptation is to say, Lord, I am sinful, which is true. Uh, Lord, you are good and you forgive me, which is true. But you should also confess specific sin. Lord, I did this, and I did this because I didn't trust you. I thought this would fulfill me more. I was banking on this sin. That's why I sinned, and I'm sorry. That's much more personal and mournful than I'm sorry for all of my sin. Uh, you can't add buts in your prayer. You can't say, nobody, money, nobody accepts the apology of, I'm sorry, but. That's not an apology. That's not an apology. If, if, somebody said, if somebody said to me, 
I'm sorry I punched you in the leg today, but you really deserved it. I may have deserved it, but I don't appreciate that apology at all. And neither does God. Why would we think that God appreciates that? Lord, I'm sorry that I did this, but it was just far more comfortable for me uh, to do this, and it worked out a lot better next time I got you. That's not, that's not mourning of sin. Uh, and probably the most graphic, well, certainly the most graphic, uh, would be to think about the literal pain and suffering that you heaped upon Jesus at the cross. Uh, there's a reason I chose that song, the second verse. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin possessive, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice possessive, calling out among the scoffers. It was my sin, possessive, that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was our sin that beat Jesus beyond human recognition, Isaiah 53. It was our sin that did that. It was your sin. It was my sin. It was a sin that we'll commit tomorrow. And that's why it deserves to be mourned. Um, and... Uh, had a final quote that's on my phone. I'll try and remember it. Colin Smith, he said, um, wait, I don't even know if I can remember that. I highly doubt, ah, I'll pull it up on my phone after and, and I'll, I'll share it with you. Uh, let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I pray that we would all hear this and we would understand it. Um, it's so easy to minimize our sin. Um, and ultimately, Lord, we don't understand it for what it is, uh, and we won't understand it until we're in glory. But Lord, I pray that you would increase in us a love for you because of your love for us. Uh, I pray that we would understand how evil our sin is, uh, that we would be truly broken when we sin, uh, that we would be committed to repentance and be committed to the killing of sin in our lives. In your name, amen. So instead of having a question and answer time, we're going to have more group discussion time. Ultimately, um, we might come back in like five minutes and then talk about stuff. But talk to your groups. We're going to pull up that quote. That'll be good.